The following program was made possible by Ward's Lawyers. Find us at wardlegal.ca. Next saved message. Hi there, it's Catherine Vigidal from Lindsay here, wishing a happy birthday to the Advocate Podcast, a show I tune into because I really enjoy the rich local stories. Yep, we're the little podcast that could and did, and three years later, we're not even really all that little anymore. Thanks to listeners like Catherine there who've supported what we do by streaming and or downloading us for three years. And what are we doing in this episode, you ask? We'll hear how a bike share program could be pedaling into downtown Lindsay this spring, picking up on the success of similar initiatives in Bob Cajun and Fenland Falls. A heritage building by any other name is not an old building necessarily. That's kind of a myth. One of many myths on the topic, which were debunked at a recent Canadian club presentation. We'll talk to the city official who did that debunking while she explained the role of such structures in Kawartha Lakes. In calling all artists, visual, performing, and otherwise, we'll tell you about an upcoming workshop that aims to help you reach your audience, the audience that will, you know, purchase your art. Happy birthday to us! This is the Advocate Podcast, stories from Kawartha Lakes. When Lindsay's downtown was rebuilt and is still being rebuilt, when you remember that some of the crumbling sidewalk stones still have to be replaced, we covered that in an earlier episode. Well, when Lindsay's downtown was rebuilt, there was much hubbub that it was not bicycle friendly. Nice, wide sidewalks and angle parking, but no bike lanes, which many in the cycling community had lobbied for. Well, there is this. There could be, this spring, a bike share right here in Lindsay. This is where you can, for a small fee, rent a bike for half an hour, an hour, or the day, then return it to a station when you're done with it. Now, you may have seen bike shares in Fenland Falls and Bob Cajun, and now maybe a bike share just steps away from where I am sitting right now at the Lindsay Chamber of Commerce at the corner of Kent and Cambridge Streets. The Chamber is helping steer this potential program which is why I am here now with the Chamber's Executive Director, Alyssa Adams. Hey, Alyssa. Hey, how you doing? I'm well. All right, the Chamber is steering this initiative. Tell me how the idea came about. I was approached by a couple of partners, the Kawartha Lakes Environmental Ad Advisory Committee, uh, Jamie Morris and uh, Lori McCarthy here at the City of Kawartha Lakes. They had come to me and said that there was this idea for a bike share program. It had been successful in these other communities. I'd seen it in Halliburton myself. And I thought, well, what a really neat thing for me to, you know, take the bull by the horns with in my first year in this position. So um, we were fortunate enough to be able to apply for a grant through the Regional Tourism of Ontario program, and we received it. So we are in the preliminary steps of making this happen right now. There's so many people that maybe don't have the storage for a bicycle or they're cottagers that come from, you know, maybe 20, 30 minutes outside of the village of Halliburton, but they want to ride a bike up and down the street. And then you can zip around town really quickly and then you can get in the car and drive back to your cottage 20 or 30 minutes away. And I thought, what a genius idea. I also know that it's extremely popular in Bob Cajun and Fenland Falls. So the bicycles that we have looked into are the exact same program. And I think it's kind of cool because in theory, you could pick up a bike here downtown Lindsay 
ride it all the way up to trail, all the way up the trail to Fenland Falls, dock it there for the day and come back down. A big part of this partnership is actually with the Frost Student Association as well. So this is going to be a massive benefit and very heavily utilized by the students at Fleming College Frost Campus here in town. Um, it's an opportunity, there's gonna be bikes on campus. So those students that have, say, a tiny little apartment, they don't have room for a bicycle, they don't have room for any of that, they can very easily jump on these bikes and the need was recognized by, the, by those students. So the Frost Association, in partnership with this, did their own research to say this is something that will benefit our students and of course it's going to benefit our community. If you look at some of our buildings that where people live above them, you know, our downtown shops, they don't have room to bring a bicycle all the way up those tiny old stairs. Now they can walk out their door, pick up a bike, go do their grocery shopping, and it'll be a lot easier. They're all going to be fitted out with baskets, lights, all of that good stuff. So they'll be safe and they'll be easy to use. A bicycle can be a very personal thing. And I've seen the ones in Toronto and I've seen the ones here in, in Cajun and Fenland. So, so what was it about those bicycles that you went, this is universally appealing to the 22-year-old millennial and the you know the 50 plus year old like myself well they're easy to get onto they're very accessible when it comes to actually riding there's no real jumping over bars or anything like that i mean you know the old phrase once you ride a bike you can get back on it and you won't have you know you won't have a problem so similar idea but when it comes to actually using them they're they're going to be very simple to use now the bikes are all going to be tracked and covered and insured and all that good stuff so i mean knowing that we live in such a, a bright and vibrant community where people are pretty fantastic i i really don't have any concerns about about uh, any misplay or foul play with the bicycles or anything like that. There will be an app on your phone, so that's one thing, you know, the reason we're looking at some of the locations we're looking at is because there will be free Wi-Fi accessible. So if you don't have a data plan, you'll be able to access the app through, say, the library's Wi-Fi or something like that, or the colleges for the ones that'll be placed there. Uh, but the bikes themselves are, they're ergonomic, they're easy to use, they're really, really clean and pretty looking as well, which I think is important because you want to take a nice bike out for a ride. How do you keep them clean? Clean because there's obviously some maintenance involved in these. I know there's not oil changes and things like that, but how did you build that into the budget that these will have to be maintained? So we are currently investigating with some other partners right now um, for a bit of like a maintenance plan because at the end of the season, they will require some maintenance before they're stored away and brought out for the next year. Uh, but additionally, you know, having, I'll say like roadside assistance, we want to be able to have a place where if someone does get stuck, they can call and they can get some help right away. So the bike's not abandoned on the side of the road or what have you. Okay. How much will the rentals be? I'm sure you have a number and based on what Fenland has done and what Cajun has done. We haven't nailed our number down yet. Um, can you that's, give you a ballpark idea of how much? I can't give you a ballpark idea of how much, I'll be honest. I don't have a full detail on that, and I don't want to set anyone's expectations too high or too low, I guess. Um, I do know that for the students, they will be heavily discounted. And the reason for that is because we want those students to be able to explore our community, especially knowing that Fleming College, Frost Campus in particular, is welcoming a huge amount of international students. We want them to feel welcome here, and we want them to feel like they can explore where they're living for their time while they're they're completing their education. So. We, in a, in a way to encourage that, we're going to be heavily discounting it for students. And part of that will be recouped through fees that they pay to the Frost Student Association anyways. So we're going to have 20 bicycles in Lindsay all as a whole, and 10 of them will be at Fleming College, and the other 10 will be dispersed into separate areas, which we're still working with the city on exactly where they will be. There are some big plans happening in a couple of areas downtown, and we 
want to integrate them into that, but nothing set in stone at this time. For us, we really want to make sure that there are five bikes in the very downtown core and then five bikes just a little bit maybe closer to the trails and things like that so they're easily accessible for someone who wants to, you know, say, drive into town and pick one up and go for a ride. When you were mapping out your budget, how much are you hoping that the costs will be defrayed by the users themselves? Ultimately, the the only cost that we're going to have to look at is, um, you know, we're covering insurance for this. This is going to be part of the Chamber's insurance, you know, so that's all covered there. Um, but the maintenance and then the cost for us running the Movatic app is what it's called, uh, that you'll be logging into and, and renting the bicycle through. Ultimately, we just want to make that a wash, right? Like we're not in this to really make a lot of money. Um, we're we're in this for the community. I think this is that's really where the goal is. So if we can set this price, you know, modeling after Fenlon, Bob Cajun, and Halliburton, if we can model this price after that, so we can just call it even, then that's what we're we're looking for right now. What can this mean for the community, Alyssa? Not just the downtown and the businesses, but what are you hoping it'll mean for for this? Not just even for Lindsay, but for the city of Corth Lakes. You know, for myself, for example, growing up outside of town it was you always had to have your car drive your car into town and drive around I just think that for our community for those people that live 20 30 minutes outside of Lindsay to be able to drop their car in a you know municipal parking lot pick up a bike and really get a more intimate experience of downtown or or the surrounding downtown area just to be able to take it a little slower. And as well, the envir environmental impact is huge. You know, we live in a town where everybody has a car for the most part. And, you know, you might only have to go three blocks, but you jump in your car and you drive three blocks. So if we can even cut down the emissions on those three block drives here and there by utilizing these bicycles, that's gonna make a huge difference. And, you know, I like to think that we consider ourselves a very environmentally conscious community as well. And this is just gonna add to that. Bring your own helmet though, I'm guessing. Bring your own helmet, yeah. <laughs> I'm Alyssa Adams, and you're listening to The Advocate Podcast, stories from Kawartha Lakes. We are brought to you by Ward's Lawyers, our only and exclusive and so, so supportive sponsor since that very first episode three years ago today. Carissa Ward and her team of lawyers can meet any and all of your legal needs, no matter how small or how large. Find out more at wardlegal.ca. We are part of The Advocate Online and The Advocate Magazine. In the February issue, you'll find Dr. Avis Glaze's opinion piece about how Black History Month, February, can help promote unity and inclusion. Pick up your copy all across Kawartha Lakes, including Lamentia's Country Market in Lindsay and the Omimi Public Library. This wonderfully rich baritone radio voice of yours truly, Mark Doble, is happy to trumpet the sheer wonderfulness of the Advocate Podcast. In the Kawartha Lakes, there is truly nothing like it. Denis Grignon is a positive force who goes to the utmost lengths to search out emerging musicians, artists, authors, beekeepers, librarians, and even the odd pandemic-addled and shell-shocked Habs fan. The Advocate Podcast is not to be missed. Thanks to Ward's lawyers for their ongoing support of this valid exercise in goodness, local knowledge, and fresh farm air. Three years now, truly something to celebrate. Art and business. Those two entities often have a hard time melding, working together, or more specifically, artists can find the business part of marketing and or selling their art to be a challenge. 
Well, the Kawartha Lakes Arts Council wants to help change that by presenting a marketing and self-promotion for arts and culture workshop. It takes place Monday, February 27 at 2 p.m. in Janetville. One of the workshop conveners is Tim Crouch. Tim knows from whence he speaks when it comes to the business of art. He is an arts consultant. He has also managed an in-house record label, chaired the Classical Nominations Committee at the Juno Awards, was chair at Music Works Magazine, and now well, he's back home as the Marketplace Manager for our local Arts Council. Tim Crouch joins me now from his home office. Tim, thanks so much for being willing to do this. Thank you for having me. Before we get into the actual workshop that you're conducting in a few weeks, what can you tell me in your experience uh, about the, and, and this may seem like a sweeping generalization, but I'm sure you've learned a lot. What can you tell me about the artist's relationship with the business of marketing their art? Unfortunately, I think the unifying line is maybe a lack of knowledge <laughs> of, of quota, as you said, the business side of things. It's one of those things that just isn't taught. I think I'll just put it that way. I've, I've given talks at the University of Toronto to students coming up and they don't know how to do a budget spreadsheet. They don't know how to put their dollars towards promotion for themselves. All they're taught is really to um, again, I don't mean to make it about music all the time, but to be in a room practicing. There have been systems that used to exist to promote art. Uh, and those have kind of broken down a little bit. What kind of say. systems do you mean? What, what are you referring uh, to? Again, talking about music, but, but the record label distribution used to be quite well-oiled. And then Apple Music came along and cha streaming changed everything. For touring for artists, you, there used to be really established things and you know, you were kind of guaranteed to get so many concerts a year or placements a year and, and that has gone as well. I like to think that artists are actually the entrepreneurs of our age. You really need to be hustling, which I know many artists know how to do. Have those tools to know who to be talking to, who to be reaching out to, and if it's no one else, you do, as you say, have to just learn it on your own. Mm -hmm. And I think all artists are brilliant. I believe that, like really just smartest, kindest, best people I know. But they've never been, many have never been told, okay, so now who are you talking to? You're right. What, what exactly, what differentiates you? What is your unique value proposition? What is all of this? And it's those conversations that just haven't happened as much and, and I hope continue to grow a little bit. So what's the biggest hurdle any artist faces right now when they're selling their art, be it visual art or performing art? Oh, that's a great question. There are so many options out there and it can be very overwhelming, whether you're a seasoned professional or someone just starting out. So the marketer in me will answer just based on what I know, which is determining who your audience is and knowing that you don't have to, you know, the age of having NBC and ABC and CBS, and that's the only channels, you know, that's, that's over. There's every channel everywhere. So using that analogy, you know, you, you can't necessarily reach everyone all the time. To me, the biggest hurdle is taking the time to think, why are you, why are you making this? Most artists are actually good with why they're making it. There's a good sense of self there. Who you're making it for can help you decide, you know what? I'm sick of these marketers telling me I have to be on social media. You don't have to be on all social media. Maybe it's good enough just to be 
if you have a visual art that's very arresting in terms of the process of making it, maybe it's just TikTok you want to be. And that's good enough for your audience. Without giving away too much then, Tim, what could people expect to learn at the workshop in a few weeks? Don't worry, I won't give away too much because I'm still working on it <laughs> with my colleague Chantel. We're taking a very holistic approach to this workshop presentation to look at the five P's of marketing product, price, promotion, place, and people. How much of a challenge is that for you to go, this is marketing guy and woman, you've got to, you got to, you got to drill this home. From my own experience, it's, it's both the most infuriating part of my job and the most rewarding because once you get through and say, look, I'm sorry, but what you're saying is the same as everyone else is saying, <laughs> what is unique? And once once that clicks a little bit, it's a very rewarding process. It's alchemy. My job as a marketer is to be out in the marketplace saying, well, this is what people are talking about. And it's not about dumbing down your art in any way. It's about finding what's really unique and special about what you do and communicating that in a fun way to the right people. And it'll be interesting to have this workshop because we want to hear back from people. We're going to have time for questions at the end. And our hope potentially uh, at the Arts Council is that we might spin this off into a series of monthly kind of let's dive deeper into this topic. And in a way, since we're beholden to members and to the population, find out what they really want to know. And if something's really sticking, like we'll have learned something as well. And, and we'll find something that we can hopefully share some more knowledge about. Sounds like a win-win, learn, learn. <laughs> yeah. Maybe just finally, Tim, you grew up in this area. You grew up in, in Fenlon Falls. Can you speak to the arts community here in, in Corth Lakes, especially as it relates to how the artists living here can market their art? I can speak to my experience growing up. And I've gotten to know more members and, and artists by doing this marketplace work. It was such a supportive community. Local pride is there. It seems to be growing a little bit. That's just my take as kind of an external who used to be there a lot. And if everyone can be supporting these artists the way I was supported growing up, City of Cortha Lakes, I think, offers that incubation area where you can really develop your skills and get together and have that kind of local connection. You know, talking about worldwide trends, I think local is on the rise. You know, everyone wants to buy local. Everyone wants to support local a bit more. And I think that was going for the area. If it can, if it can continue to support both in terms of, you know, going out to see things, but also financially, uh, I would say, which is a whole other topic, uh, but the arts need to be supported. You sound like a guy who is looking to move back to the area, Tim. <laughs> <laughs> I'm Tim Crouch with the Kawartha Lakes Arts Council, and you're listening to The Advocate Podcast, stories from Kawartha Lakes. That workshop takes place Monday, February 27 at 2 p.m. at the Janetville Community Center. Admission? That's just a donation at the door. Hi there, my name's Craig, and I would just like to say happy third anniversary to the Advocate Podcast, Stories from Kawartha Lakes, and a big congratulations to Denis for three great years, and thanks to Ward's Lawyers for sponsoring the podcast. We've all driven past certain homes and buildings across Kawartha Lakes, from Norland all the way to Pontypool and everywhere in between, and we wondered, huh, 
I bet you there's some history there, eh? And there are people, city officials, whose job it is to ensure that local history, our heritage, via that building is preserved, even if that building is someone's home. And yes, that raises a whole lot of issues and concerns and questions and myths about official heritage designations. The Canadian Club of Lindsay recently hosted a myth busting on this topic. It featured a presentation by Emily Turner, Economic Development Officer, Heritage Planning with the City of Corth Lakes, wherein her goal was to debunk some of the more popular heritage building-related myths and to elaborate on the Provincial Bill 23. That's the one where the intention is to increase new home builds, while critics would argue it also relaxes some previous rules around conservation. One of Emily Turner's expressions that she used to describe people's reactions to heritage designations was that they sometimes, these people, they sometimes freak out. So, following her presentation at the Canadian Club, I asked Emily to elaborate on this. I think people, because they don't really understand how heritage designation works, uh, they're just really concerned about what it means for them. So they're like, does it, does, is the city going to tell me what to do? Am I not allowed to do this? Am I not allowed to do that? Um, so people panic a little bit, I think, because they just don't really understand how the process works or the fact that it's really not as hard as they think it is. So how do you talk people down off of that ledge then to convince them that, look, someone has come to us and said that your property could be designated as a heritage site and now they're thinking, okay, I didn't really buy into this, but I'm going to have to. So how do you work that through with them to say that, this is going to be important. I know it's not something you were expecting, but this is for a greater good. What we usually do is get people to understand the fact that heritage, having a heritage designation or listing doesn't mean that it's going to be harder for them to do things. So I always like to emphasize to people that the city is there to support people who own heritage properties, to help them conserve the things that are, um, that are important. If it's been identified as heritage, they've obviously already done good work to preserve it. So we want to help to support them doing that. So if they're applying for a heritage permit, we don't want that to be onerous. We don't want that to be expensive for them. You mentioned the situation out near Old Mill Park where a lot of people, let's say a number of people, aren't buying into it. So how do you convince people of that greater good that this is a good thing for the community versus the, you know, stay off my land kind of attitude? That's that's very challenging. Some people. Uh, really are not interested in heritage and don't want to be convinced and I mean that's cer certainly their their right and their opinion and um, we definitely respect that. For people who are interested in engaging us with us a little bit more and talking through why it might be good for them, we discuss some of the things that it does to help out our communities. So whether or not that's introducing design guidelines so it means that terrible renovations to other properties around them don't happen how it can help bring the community together um, by recognizing their shared heritage, uh, the ways in which the city can support them through renovations. Those are the kinds of things that I discuss with people um, and sometimes people are very receptive to those and it gets them thinking about why it's important and sometimes people aren't. This night was largely about dispelling, debunking myths. What are some of the biggest ones you've had to deal with in your role with people whose properties may or may not be designated heritage? 
I think the biggest one is that people think that if their property is heritage, they can't do anything to it. People really don't want to live in a museum. Uh, they don't want to not be able to make changes to their property, and I totally understand that. But that's simply not true. So one of the things I always tell people is that heritage isn't about preventing change, it's about managing change. So if you're a heritage property owner, you want to make changes to your property, you can definitely do that, but you just have to make them in a heritage sympathetic way. That's definitely the biggest uh, the biggest issue that comes forward all the time, but it's definitely something that's it's really not true. Um, and we work with heritage property owners so that they can do some of the projects that they want on their homes. Okay, so what's that like when you finally convince that person who may have been reluctant, whose property may have been deemed a heritage site and, and was reluctant. What's it like for you when you finally convince them that this is a good thing? It's great. I always see property owners as our biggest asset when it comes to conserving heritage. I mean, I can do my city role and make policy, designate buildings, make recommendations to council, but at the end of the day, it's property owners who do the work by keeping those buildings. So working with property owners to do that work and supporting them, that's very satisfactory for me so that we can build those relationships with the community to preserve heritage together. There is a certain parochial nature to any small community, let's face it, and Lynn, you're already smiling, you know where I'm going with this. So what are those challenges versus, you know, that maybe that stereotype that the people in, in an urban area are a little bit more open to this? Dealing with people who have deep roots in this community and maybe don't want their property changed or that property changed across the street, what's your challenge? I think having Communities with deep roots and strong community connections is a huge benefit for heritage. People recognize why places are important. You know, their their grandpa went to that church. They hang out with their friends at that particular uh, bar or restaurant downtown. Their kids have done activities at this certain place. So people really, I find here, even though there's certainly a reluctance for government to step in and say this is a heritage property. People inherently recognize the values of those places because they're community spaces that people use and understand why they're important to them and their families and their communities. You've painted a very romantic picture of what it should be like. Can you point to one in the city of Kawartha Lakes where maybe people were reluctant and then went, huh. Okay, I get it. Uh, so we recently designated the uh, the Cobaconk train station. So uh, the city actually owns that building, but it's currently being turned into a medical center for Northern Kawartha Lakes, uh, which is a super project. And uh, I'm, you know, I'm very supportive of that for sure. Um, and it's also a great use of a heritage building. So we designated that property as a condition of the approval to turn it into a medical center. And there was definitely some pushback on that because there was concern that because the property was designated, the community wouldn't get the assets that it that they needed, um, which is medical professionals in Northern Kawartha. Well, I think you touched on this a little bit, that they're often heritage buildings, which as long as the exterior stays, uh, in, in, in the integrity of the exterior stays the same, that it's common to see the, uh, the interior converted into doctor's offices or lawyer's offices. That's great. Yeah, that's absolutely right. And it's a great thing that we want to see. So with that particular project, with some conversation with the folks who are making that happen, we talked through the designation, how it fit within their wider project. And it's become a very positive part of that project going forward now. What's your biggest challenge right now as we move forward and, and, and you take a look at all the properties throughout the city of Kawartha Lakes, noting that some of them should be designated heritage and What's your challenge in, in reaching that goal? 
I think our biggest challenge right now is actually Bill 23, which has come down from the province. People have talked about it a lot in relation to a whole bunch of other stuff. But we've been imposed with some very tight timelines and specific restrictions in Bill 23, and it makes it really hard for us to appropriately designate properties, but also to communicate effectively with property owners because of the tight timelines. We want to make Heritage a, colla- a much more collaborative approach than the new legislation really allows. So that's a huge challenge for us and a big change in approach to how we've approached um, heritage in the past. How do you meet that challenge? That's a very good question. I think that's something we're still working through. So uh, stay tuned over the next little while to see how we do that. I think we'll figure out a way to make this work for everybody, but it's going to take a lot of effort and time and willingness on the part of our community members um, and also on the city. So staff, our heritage committee and council, we're all going to have to work together to meet the challenge. My thanks to Emily Turner with the City of Fourth Lakes for talking to me about heritage buildings and addressing some of the myths that surround them. Thanks to Ward Lawyers for three years as our exclusive sponsor, wardlegal.ca. That's where you'll find out what Carissa Ward and her team of lawyers can do for you, which really is meeting any and all of your legal needs. Gerald Van Haltren, whom you can also see perform regularly at the Coach and Horses, has also been part of this show for three years, writing and performing our theme and musical bridges. We love getting your feedback and hearing your story ideas. Reach out to us and follow us on our Facebook page and tell others about our show, nudging them to give us a listen on their favorite streaming platform. The Advocate Podcast, Stories from Quartha Lakes, is written, hosted, and produced by me, Denny Grignell. We're back in early March with a brand new episode. Stay safe, stay wise, trust in the science. Talk to you soon.